beginning to look a lot like Christmas, beginning to sound a whole lot like Christmas. Amen? I know we're just in uh, the beginning of the month, but we're actually starting a brand new sermon series. Um, it's going to be all about Christmas, the wonders of Christmas. How many believe this is a wondrous time of year? Anybody? I know it's a hectic time of year. How many would say they know that? We all know it's a hectic time of year, but let's get past the chaos and remember through this whole season what it's really about. It's about a Savior. It's about our Lord and our Savior. So I'm looking forward to this Christmas series. I want to start out with a story that I heard about a manager of a large office. One day he was working in the office and he noticed an employee that he didn't know. And he asked the young man, what's your name? The young man said, well, my name is John. He said, wait a minute. He said, I don't know where you worked uh, at before, but around here we don't call each other by first names. He said it breeds familiarity and it breaks down the chain of command, chain of authority. He said, uh, um, I call my employees by their last name, Brown, Jones, Smith. You got it? And the guy said, yeah, I get it. He said, you can refer to me as Mr. Robertson. And he said, now that we've got all that straightened out, he said, young man, what is your name? The guy kind of sighed, and he said, it's Darling. He said, my name is John Darling. With that said, the boss said, nice to meet you, John. Amen? <laughs> Changed his tune in a hurry. Well, in today's message, we're going to be starting out looking at the first chapter of the book of Matthew that contains over 40 names, and let's just say some were darlings and some were disasters. Some of the people were darlings and some were disasters. Many of us tend to skip over at least part of the Christmas story every year. I've done it too, especially the first chapter of the book of Matthew where he starts out with this long list of hard-to-pronounce names. I would have thought that Matthew would have started out when he's announcing the exciting birth of Christ with something that had a little bit more bang to it than a list of kind of boring names. This seemingly boring list of names is in there, and because it's in the Bible, guess what? It's important. Excuse me. It's important, no matter how boring it is. It's it, very important. How many remember several years ago, a man by the name of Alex Haley? Anybody? Does that name ring a bell? Anybody remember him? He wrote a book. He wrote a TV miniseries on his quest to find his ancestry. Some of you are tracking with me now. You've already figured out it was called Roots, right? It was called Roots. And I remember sitting in front of the TV set week after week with probably most of America following the story of Kunta Kinte. Some of you have no clue, but a lot of us do. But I said all that to say I think deep down, really deep down inside of every one of us, we're on a quest. We're on a quest for our ancestry. We're on a quest to find out about our heritage. And when it comes to our spiritual heritage and our spiritual roots, you're not going to find those spiritual roots until you look at this list of boring, seemingly boring names in the first chapter of Matthew. It's actually Matthew's account of Jesus' family tree. It goes back over 28 generations. It represented 16 to 1,800 years. And to the Jewish people, at least in biblical times... Their genealogy was very significant. Their genealogy was major. It was very important because they absolutely wanted to know where they came from. They absolutely wanted to know what ancestry they followed. They wanted to know what tribe of Israel they descended from. But when it comes to the Christmas story relating to us, 
I think the most amazing thing about this Christmas story is not that God broke into history, but that he broke into history using ordinary people. Have you ever thought about that? He broke himself into history. God Emmanuel, God with us, came to this earth in the form of his son through Mary and Joseph. Ordinary people. Everything that God does in this world, he does through his people. Do you realize that? Everything he does, he does through his people. God accomplishes his purposes and his plans, his way through his people. So that ought to encourage every one of us today. That, wow, God can use me. Wow, God can accomplish his purposes through me, through this life, and through the world of people that we have to do amazing, incredible things, even divine things. You bear with me. I'm going to try to read through this genealogy, and I'm probably going to butcher these names. I'm probably going to mispronounce practically all of them. I might hit a couple of them right, but you're never going to know it because you don't know how to pronounce them either. Amen? (laughs) So just bear with me. It starts out in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. Stop right there. Now we're getting somewhere. Amen. (laughs) The husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Can you say whoo with me? How many of you, be honest, when you get to a scripture like that, you just kind of tune out? I mean, be honest, how many of us just kind of skip over it, don't want to read it? I actually didn't want to read it either, but I did for your sakes this morning. I'm glad when my parents named me, they didn't name me Zerubbabel. Amen? Can you imagine spelling that as a kindergartner? Can you imagine Zerubbabel, Aminadab, Hezron? You know, when it comes to genealogy, some people are all out in genealogies. I mean, they're going for it. Uh, They not only study their own family tree, their genealogies, but they study everybody else's. I've never been one of those people. You get past my grandparents and maybe push it toward my great-grandparents, and I don't know much about my family. I probably should know more. 
So I'm not really into genealogy, and part of the reason is we just had Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm thinking, I've got enough crazy in my family already. I don't need to go digging up more, amen? Some of you can relate to that. So Matthew starts out his gospel with kind of, I'll say, a snoozer. I mean, a genealogy of all things. But there's a reason for this genealogy. There's a reason for this list of seemingly boring names. And when I studied for this message and prepared for it, I was amazed at what I read in commentaries. I was amazed at what different uh, preachers had taught about this text we're going to look at today. And I realized deep down what Matthew was trying to say to us through this seemingly list of boring names is amazing. It's remarkable. And if you'll get in there and dissect it a little bit, and you'll find out more about it even today, it's amazing what he's trying to tell us. I'm going to break it down into a few things. And the first one I'm going to look at, I took from a man by the name of Tim Keller, uh, a minister, um, made it my first point, and that is the gospel is not just good advice, it's the good news. Do you realize that? It has a lot of good advice, yes, but it, more than that, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. Most stories, most fairy tales start out with what? Once upon a time, right? Or in a land far, far away. Well, when Matthew starts his story, he doesn't start out like that. He starts out with a genealogy which I think is his way of saying what I'm about to tell you actually took place in time and space. What I'm about to tell you wasn't a fairy tale. It's actual history. I mean, it's a fact. One of the greatest features about Christianity is that it actually took place. Do you realize that? The whole story took place. Some people would disagree, but it's a fact. I mean, it's covered. I mean, it's uh, proved that it is a fact, and it's important because the core of Christianity is not just a set of principles that Jesus came to teach us. It's something that Jesus came to do for us. And when you think about probably the main theme that all of us think about first when it comes to our walk of faith and, and to the Christian faith is His death on the cross, my mind always goes right there for first about the price that He paid It's like the world skims over the first 33 years of his life, even three years of his ministry here on earth. And we pay attention, which is the best thing to do, pay attention to that one week where Jesus was beaten. He was betrayed. He was beaten. Uh, He hung on a cross. He gave up his life to forgive us, forgive the world of their sins, to die in our place, buried in a tomb. And then in three days, he what? He rose again. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So that tells us that somebody had to die. And think of our Savior. He was willing to die. He was willing to go to the cross. He was willing to pay the price. Someone had to pay the price with their life. And Jesus stepped up and said, I'll pay whatever price it takes. Jesus did that so we wouldn't have to. Do you realize that? That ought to thrill your spirit this morning. That ought to thrill your heart. Jesus paid the price so that you and I wouldn't have to. Actually, we couldn't have paid the price he paid. I watched a show one time, and and they were discussing uh, this overseas religion that were still in the uh, custom of sacrificing animals. And this show host had a big audience in front of him, and he asked the question, uh, he said, folks, why is it that we don't sacrifice animals like they used to in biblical times? I was shocked, because no one in that audience even mentioned the name Jesus. And I'm sure there were some Christians there. 
They didn't even mention the name Jesus. And I thought, how sad is that, that not one in this audience knows that Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God that paid the price in full. But not one of us, not one of them knew that. And I'm thinking, I wonder how many people in this room may not mention the name of Jesus when it comes to not having to sacrifice animals before because Jesus says, I'll be the Lamb of God. I am the Lamb of God. And He paid the price once and for all for you and me. Let's get personal this morning. Realize that Jesus did it for you. If you were the only one in this building today, He did it for you. He did it for me. What He did, paid an ultimate price. Hallelujah. So that goes back to my point. The gospel isn't just good advice. It's the good news, and I'll just call it the great news. Let me test your Christmas skills. How many of you remember who showed up when Jesus was born? I mean, in, the, in multitudes. Who showed up? The angels. Some of you were going to say wise men, weren't you? That's why I said multitudes. The angels showed up. Let me ask you this. How many angels showed up at your birth? <laughs> just think about that. Probably not as many as at Christ's birth, for sure. But these angels, when Jesus was born, came pronouncing peace on earth, goodwill to man, right? Peace on earth, salvation to men. They didn't come saying, the great teacher is here. They came saying, the Savior is here. A Savior is born. The truth is, bottom line is, what the world needed was not just another religious leader, not just another religious teacher. What the world needed, God knew what they needed, and He provided. We needed a Savior, and he provided a Savior. A Savior was, bo was born. God knew it. God provided it. God manifested a Savior. Not just for you and me, but for the world. The most important thing about the gospel is, number one, it has to be believed. But you can't stop there. You can't just believe it. You have to receive it like a gift. Which absolutely means you're not a Christian just because you're trying to emulate or imitate the moral teachings of Jesus. That doesn't make you a Christian, amen? Because the core of Christianity, even if you do it the best better than anybody else, it still doesn't make you a Christian. But the core of Christianity is not a set of rules to be followed. You realize it's a gift to be received? To be believed and then to be received. It's the good news. Not just good advice, but some good news. And all we have to do, and this is the amazing grace of God, all we have to do is believe it. And all we have to do is receive it. Which brings me to my second point. Jesus is the center of history. I mean, time will tell you that. When Jesus was born, do you realize he split time in half? You had B.C. and you've got A.D. now. He split time in half. And when Jesus was born, the most powerful empire in the world was the Roman Empire. The most powerful nation, the most powerful people in the world. And at Jesus' birth, at first, they weren't even concerned about his family lineage at all. But God had made a promise to Father Abraham thousands of years earlier that one day he was going to bring salvation to this world through a Savior, through Jesus, his Son. So think about the world conditions at that time. That, at that moment in history, there were a lot of powerful people. There were a lot of powerful nations, and the most powerful of all was the nation of Rome. It seems like they were orchestrating everything. It seems like they were directing everything. Well, I believe part of the reason that Matthew comes along with this genealogy in the beginning of the book of Matthew is to show us that it wasn't Rome that was in control. Not at all. It was God that was in control to work out the purposes of His Son, Jesus, the Messiah for the world. 
Another detail that most of us in the room remember is when it comes to the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph had to travel to where? Anybody know? Bethlehem. They had to go to uh, Bethlehem because Rome had issued a tax. Remember that? And you had to go back to your hometown to register. But Luke comes along in his gospel, and he gives us another reason why they had to go to Bethlehem, and it was to fill an Old Testament uh, prophecy that said the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. So think about this. God moves Rome, the most powerful nation in the world at the time, to issue a tax just to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. I'm thinking, wait a minute, God, you could have saved yourself a lot of trouble. You could have saved yourself a lot of trouble and just given Joseph a dream like he had done before. Joseph, pack it up, pack Mary up, and head to Bethlehem. Would have been as simple as that. Why didn't he do it? He didn't do it because he wanted you and I to dig a little deeper in the truth of the story to realize that God moves powerful people, powerful nations like he's just playing a game of chess. I mean, he has full control to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to accomplish his purposes in his son and for his son. Think about this. Put it simply, he taxed the whole world just to move two people 90 miles. <laughs> Get that? He taxed the whole world to move two people 90 miles. Who's in control, Rome or God? God's in control. What's that mean for us today? I would say if you turn on your TV set, when I look at the world through... Uh, the newscaster's eyes, I don't see Jesus in much of the center of history at all. I don't see Jesus in much of the center of anything at all in our world. When you look at the news stations today, CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, whatever you want to look at today, they're not so concerned about what we're doing here on Sunday morning. They're out there trying to dig up what they consider the big news stories of the day. What's going on or what's not going on at the White House, world politics, economy. But when I think about the big picture, these things are an insignificant little bitty drop in a bucket compared to the God that we serve that is moving, the God that we serve that is managing, God that, that is moving powerful nations and people at His will to accomplish His will. He's moving. Sometimes we think of world powers and they're so powerful, you've got to start thinking beyond world powers and thinking of the God that is absolutely powerful. Amen? Think about what all He is doing and what He can do. But be honest, back in the days of Jesus' birth, they were in turmoil. The people of God were. They were discouraged. The people of God were discouraged because they were under the oppressive rule of Rome. They were actually crying out to God to fulfill His promises. He had made a lot of promises. Because Rome, they were under their oppression. They were being beaten down. They were being treated so horribly. I love what Isaiah wrote as a prophecy years and years before Jesus came to be born in a manger. He said that the light was coming into the world. He said that light that was coming into the world came to a people shrouded in darkness. When I hear that word shrouded, that's kind of a King James word. When I hear that word shrouded, I'm thinking it's covered. I mean, it's black. I mean, the world at that time when Jesus was born was shrouded. It was covered in darkness. The words gloom, anguish, and contempt were three adjectives that the Bible uses to describe that darkness. So when Jesus was born... The Word of God hadn't been heard, guess how long? For 400 years. 400 years they hadn't heard a word from God. So imagine the Israelites. I'm sure they were discouraged. For 400 years he was in silence. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, he went silent. They were discouraged. 
looking around at seeing, wait, wait a minute, God, with all these promises, Rome is still in charge. God, when are you going to show up? When are you going to do something? How about you today? Maybe you're shrouded in some darkness today. Maybe you've got some difficulties and some problems and some issues in your life. Maybe you're discouraged. You know, I can't hardly watch the news anymore. I don't know about you. I can't hardly turn it on any channel without getting frustrated, angry, and mad. And discouraged. Because I look at our world, and I see hatred in a level I've never seen before. I see hatred in a level I've never seen before. I see unbelief growing in levels I've never seen it before. I've seen secularism taking over, corrupting our institutions, our schools, our government, destroying our nation. I see division like I've never seen it before. And I would just say this, we're definitely not the United States of America anymore. I didn't say that to put you in despair this morning. Even as bad as that sounds, even as bad as it looks, don't be deceived, don't even be discouraged, because it didn't look back then like Jesus or like God was doing anything to work out His will either. He was silent for 400 years. 400 years. So none of our silence has been that long. Amen? He was silent for 400 years. We didn't think he was working out any of his purposes, but he was. And in fact, I'll push it a little further. He was working out the greatest work he had ever done in his life. Amen? In eternity. Bringing forth the Messiah. So this morning, you might be discouraged. Where you're living right now in your condition, your situation, because things look like they're totally out of your control, Maybe out of your control, but I can guarantee it's not out of his control. Amen? Not out of his control. God is still on the throne. God is still in control. God has a purpose in your life and for your life. Do you realize that? God has a purpose and a plan for your life, and part of that purpose is to reveal Jesus to you first and to be glorified in and through your life. Do you realize that everything in your life has ultimately always been about that. It's been about His purpose and His plan, even when we get way off track. How many have seen God pull you back on track to get you back into plan of His purpose? I am so thankful for His long arms that have had to reach a long way to get me when I got way off track. I got way out of the zone, but God pulled me back. And I'm so thankful that you and I don't have to be discouraged because in everything we do, God's got a purpose and God's got a plan, even when it seems like it's falling apart even when it seems like things are going in the opposite direction, if you're trusting in Him, and sometimes when you're not, He's working out His plans. Brings me to my last point. God is working in all things, good and bad. He didn't just work in the good things. He works in the good and the bad for His purposes. You know, the holidays are upon us. Some of us have already had Thanksgiving dinner, where some of us are going to have Christmas dinner, where we're sitting across the table with family members, some that we haven't seen for a long time, some that we wish we hadn't seen even longer, amen? Some that we definitely don't get along with. And some of us are thinking there in our minds, wow, we put the fun in dysfunctional, amen? Because we've got some dysfunction in our families. Ladies, don't point to your husbands, and I promise I won't point to my mother-in-law, wherever she is, I don't know. But when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, I said all that to say that he had some major dysfunction in his genealogy. Do you realize that? He had some major, major dysfunction in his family line. I want to start reading uh, verse 3. I kind of brushed through it earlier, but listen to what it says. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. 
Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You probably, or many of you, don't know the real story behind this story. And first of all, I want to say, why did he put the mother's name in there in the first place? Because that wasn't their custom back then. They didn't even uh, put women's names in genealogy. Something changed here. I believe he put that in there for us to stop and think long enough to realize the truth behind this story, maybe do a little bit digging on our own. This story's kind of graphic. I'm going to paraphrase it. I started to say if you wanted to take your little ones out of here, it uh, might be a good time to do it, but I'll, I'm going to try to clean it up a little bit. You go back and read it on your own sometimes. The Bible's got some real soap opera stuff in it sometimes, amen? But Tamar was the wife of one of Judah's sons. A lady by the name of Tamar, who was mentioned already, was the wife of one of Judah's sons, but her husband died before they were able to start a family, have kids. And for a Jewish woman, that meant disgrace back then. If you didn't have kids, if you were barren, it was considered a punishment from God. And in those days, when your husband would die, it was the duty of the next brother in line to step up and to marry his deceased brother's wife and to give her children. So the next brother in line, his name was Onan, he steps up and he takes Tamar as his wife. Evidently, he didn't really want to. Evidently, he didn't like her. He didn't love her, didn't want to have any kids with her. Because whenever they came together, Onan made sure that he didn't quite seal the deal. Let's just put it that way. Well, God wasn't pleased with this either, so he kills Onan. Now, Judah has lost two sons. He's only got three, and the younger son is so young, he's not ready to marry anybody yet. And Tamar's going to have to wait till he gets old enough to marry her. So even after Shelah, the third son, gets old enough to marry her, Judah's not going to let Shelah marry Tamar. So she reads between the lines and realizes this is going nowhere, so I'm going to come up with my own plan, my own scheme. So she finds out that her father-in-law, Judah, and think again, he's in the family line of Jesus. He's got a thing for prostitutes, okay? So she dresses up like a prostitute, puts a veil over her face so he doesn't recognize her. She seduces him. She gets pregnant with twins who happen to be Perez and Zerah. They were in the family lineage. Three months later, after this seducing took place, she's pregnant. She starts to show. Judah starts to realize, hey, she's been out running around, sleeping around. And Judah doesn't know those are his babies. <laughs> and he wants to get rid of her anyway. So they drag her out. and They're ready to execute her for her sins. They're ready to execute her, and Tamar pulls out a belt, and she says, this is the belt of the man whose babies these are, and it was Judah. Judah's kind of in between a rock and a hard place, amen? So Judah actually lets her go, and I'm thinking, I wonder what their conversation was like around their Thanksgiving dinner table that year, amen? <laughs> Think how crazy that would have been. <laughs> Yeah, I cleaned up the story. You ought to read it for yourself sometime. But even, in, even despite Tamar's unorthodox methods, let's just give her the benefit of the doubt, she was still considered somewhat of a lady of integrity because she risked her life for her family and her children and to carry on the family line. She knew she had a right to a child. She knew that her deceased husband had a right to an heir. I said all that. If you look at the crux of this story, God uses some unconditional moments, let's just say some ugly moments in life, to perform His will. His amazing grace comes through even the bad stuff sometimes. 
And through her children, Tamar and her children, came Jesus. Came the Messiah. Pretty amazing. I think all of us would say that was kind of messy. That was kind of chaotic. That was kind of me- and I'm thinking if he can do that in that situation, just think what he could do in your life with your mess. It doesn't matter how big a mess you're in right now or what you're doing. God can use it for his gl- glory. I'm not saying stay in that mess. I'm saying turn to God and let him use it for something Good. Use it for one of his purposes. Sometimes things happen and we think God's a million miles away doing nothing. Sometimes everything seems like it's going in totally the opposite direction. I can stand here and testify when my life was going in the total opposite direction of God, God was already way down here waiting on me to turn me around to get me back that way. God is doing the same or wants to do the same in your life. He hasn't forgot about you this morning. You are important to God. You are worth everything to God. He paid the ultimate price for your life. Because the truth is, we've all got dysfunction in our life. God's never been happy about that dysfunction. He's never been happy about the pain that that dysfunction has caused. I believe with all of my heart, he's been, dis- he's been brokenhearted. He's been hurt by the pain that we have suffered through things that people have done to us. Just like it would anger me, somebody hurting my kids. It angers God. But God has one overriding main purpose for your life. And that's to accomplish His plan. To accomplish Jesus' plan in and through your life. And He's working in all things, that Scripture said. He's working in all things, even the darkest parts of your genealogy, the things that we'd rather hide. He's working in it to bring His plan to pass. I've always heard this little saying, He can turn your mess into a miracle. God is that kind of God. He can turn your mess into a miracle and He can turn it around and use it for good. Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good. Not just some things, but all things work together for good for them that love God and are called according to His purpose. But for a Jewish people, if we go back, for the Jewish people back in history, their genealogy was like their resume. It was important. Their heritage and knowing where they came from was important. That's how they showed showed the world their value. Back in that day, they did. How many of you have ever been talking to someone, you can tell they're trying to show off a little bit? I mean, they're trying to tell you about their family history, and they'll say, well, my great, 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 great grandpa, yeah, George Washington, yeah, it was George. (laughs) Or if you go back far enough in my family tree, uh, part of us belong to the royal family, you know, stuff like that. You're never going to hear somebody step up and say, you'll never believe this, my my great, great uncle was Charles Manson. They're not going to say that. Or some notorious criminal. If it was true, they're not going to give you that information. That's why I love this genealogy is because Jesus just lays it all out there through the book of Matthew, through this genealogy, warts and all. As I said, there were some darlings, but there were some disasters. Look who Jesus included. I've already mentioned one, Tamar. Think back of that story I just told. She was willing to dress up like a prostitute, seduce her father-in-law to carry on her family line. Then you've got Rahab. She was a prostitute, a harlot in Jericho that God actually delivered from Jericho because she helped out his spies. Then you've got Ruth. She's mentioned. She was a Moabite. She worshipped pagan gods. I see all these women mentioned, which is out of the ordinary in the first place, because back then women weren't considered to be all that important, yet they were to Jesus. Jesus included them in his genealogy. And when I think about these women, they weren't actually real respectable women, every woman listed in that story actually was involved in some sort of sexual scandal 
But he's not just picking on the ladies, okay? Comes up with David next, verse 6. David and the wife of Uriah. Now, Matthew knew her name. Why didn't he just say her name was Bathsheba? He didn't. I think it's because he wants us to know the truth of the story, to dig a little bit deeper. Uriah was one of David's best friends, one of his best soldiers. One day when Uriah was out fighting with David's army, David was home. He saw Bathsheba taking a bath on the roof. He had an affair with her. She she became pregnant. And to hide that pregnancy and that sin, he had Uriah killed out on the battlefield. What's that tell you today? I think it tells me that God came for the outcast. God came for the outcast. God came for the underdogs. God came for the imperfect people of the world. And he wasn't ashamed right there in his lineage, it tells us. He wasn't ashamed to identify them as his brothers and sisters. He wasn't ashamed to invite them into the family of God. Another thing it tells us, you've got, King, you've got Abraham and King David in the same list of names as the prostitute Rahab. What's that tell you to me? It tells us that in Jesus Christ, prostitutes and kings sit down as equals. In Christ, it's all level. In Christ, everything is all equal. I think this whole list of names is a message to you and I. All this seemingly boring list of names included in the line that leads to Christ is there so that we can realize that our names can be included in the line that comes from Christ. They were included in the names that led up to Christ so that you and I could know today that we can be in that line. We can be in those names that come out from Christ. That means no matter who you are today, what you've done today, God is inviting you into His family. God wants you in His family. God loves you with a love just like He loves everyone else. No one's more important to Him than anyone else. You might feel like a second-class citizen today. You might feel like you're overlooked today. You might feel like an outcast. You're not. You might feel worthless today. You're not. And the reason I know that is because Jesus came along and He paid the most precious price that could ever be paid, the price of His blood, given on a cross, so that we could be called sons and daughters of the Most High. You might think your life is over or God's plan for your life is over. I can guarantee you it's not. Read that genealogy like I tried to do and you realize it's not. It might make you feel a little bit better about your own family. Amen? But realize His plan is not over. And when I read that genealogy, I'm thinking, wow, God, if you can do that with that mess, what can you do in my life? What can you do with us? God was at work in the ugliest of situations. He's always been at work in the ugliest of situations. That's how He works. Because none of us are perfect enough or ever will be perfect enough. And even the ugliest of situations, He worked His most beautiful plan of all time, His Son Jesus coming to this world to be the Savior of this world. So again, just think what He can do with your life. Think what he can do with your life if you just give him a chance. You realize you don't have to earn God's love. A lot of people have the mentality that I've got to work really hard to earn God's love. No, you don't have to earn God's love. You can't earn God's love. You just have to accept it. You have to receive it. You have to believe it. Because he went to all the trouble he went, so all that we would have to do is receive it. You don't have to prove yourself. You realize when you give your life to Christ, you've got his full approval doesn't mean we're perfect, but you've got His full approval. 
you've got the opinion of the one, only one that matters. His opinion is the only one that matters. And you don't have to worry about carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders anymore. You realize that? Because God came to be your good shepherd. Jesus came to be your good shepherd. He came to be your protector, your provider. He came to be your savior. He came to be your friend. And he also came to give you rest. And I wonder how many of us, maybe right now in this moment, that's what you need. For whatever reason, you need some real rest. He said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He didn't say, I might give you rest. He says, I will. But did you catch the first part, come unto me? If you're out there still trying to spin your wheels and do it all yourself, you're not coming unto him. Coming unto him with your burdens and he'll give you rest. That's what some of us need right now, rest. And I can say God moved heaven and earth to make it possible in the form of sending His Son, Jesus, to do all that He's done to be our Savior. And He really made it easy for you and me. All we have to do is say, yes, Lord. All we have to do is say, I believe it and I receive it. Could you stand to your feet this morning? I believe it and I receive it. This Christmas season, my prayer for everyone in this room is that we'll realize more than ever the perfect, the perfect, the perfect gift that God gave in His Son. Do you know Him this morning? Is He your Lord and Savior? Because life is fragile. Have you realized that yet? Life is short in the big scope of eternity. And I can say there's no joy on earth that will sustain you, keep you, or fulfill you because guess what? This earth wasn't created to sustain us. It wasn't created to fulfill us. You and I were created for something so much more, and it's been all about what I've been talking about today. It's Him, His plan, and His purposes. So I'd say to you today, there's love and a joy and a peace that's somewhere from outside of this world's realm. And He's pressing into your life, and I say Him, because this love, joy, and peace has a name, and His name is Jesus. And when all is said and done and all the minor characters and actors of this story sit down and take their seats, there's only going to be one standing in center stage that deserves all the glory, praise, and honor. And His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, today and forever. But today He's offering you the rest and the peace that you need through this season. All you have to do is reach out and take it by faith. All you have to do is receive it. He's offering it. Receive it. Rest for your weary soul. Maybe rest from anxiety, worry, fear. Rest from uh, troubles in relationships. Maybe it's just rest from this hustle bustle of this Christmas season. But the biggest question of all, do you know Jesus? Is He your Lord and Savior or is He just someone you heard about? Is He Lord and Savior? If you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, with every head bowed, every eye closed right now, I believe hearing a message like this... And it wasn't anything I've ever said. But it's what Jesus said through this message and through this story that tells you right now you are, you are worthy of His love. He loves you whether you're worthy or not. He loved you. He gave his, his life on a cross so that you could become one of His. Today, if you don't belong to Jesus Christ, I just want you, to, with every head bowed, every eye closed, slip up your hand right now and say, I want you to be Lord of my life, Jesus. I need you to be Lord of my life. I see those hands. Thank you, Jesus for touching people's hearts today, wanting to be Lord and Savior of their lives. Tell Him right now. Simply come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Be my Savior. I want to live my life for you. If you'll do that, you belong to Him. 
come and see me after church if you made that decision. But I didn't want to close this service without giving you an opportunity to meet this Savior that traveled from eternity to here so that we could be saved. Father God, I thank you in the name of Jesus that you came to be everything we need. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus, the greatest gift ever given. We thank you that you made a way when there was no way. You made a way for us to be reconciled to you through Jesus, our Savior. I thank you for including us in your family line, even with all of our imperfections, our mistakes and flaws. Lord, I pray that your wonderful, indescribable peace would flow into every heart represented in this room today, that you would overcome discouragement, loneliness, sadness, worries, and fears. And I pray you would bring your rest, your perfect rest and your peace into our hearts and help us to take that peace and share it with the world around us. In Jesus' name, for your glory today and forever, I pray. Amen. God bless you all. Come back next week. God is good.